Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. So Shopify, I've got a stock for you, Shopify, Lisa. The stock is up uh, 215% over the last year. These are the good folks that uh, help merchants set up and manage their online stores. Stock has done phenomenally well. Just had some great uh, earnings out uh, in the last couple of days. Harley Finkelstein, Chief Operating Officer of Shopify, uh, joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Harley, thanks so much for being with you. Usually we chat with you on the phone, so it's good to have you in studio. Great to be here. What is driving the growth of Shopify? I mean, when people think online, they just, they just, and they think retail, they just think Amazon putting retail out of business, but there are a lot of retailers using your technology that are kind of getting it done, right? Yeah, there's a million uh, merchants, a million stores now on Shopify, and they sold $61 billion in 2019. That's up about 49% from the previous year. Uh, our revenue for 2019 was approximately 1.5 billion. That's up 47%. So certainly, I think people are beginning to understand what Shopify is, uh, and what we are is we're the world's first first retail operating system. And uh, we have stores that are starting on Shopify getting really big. That's the Allbirds. That's the Bombas Socks of the world. That's the Gymsharks of the world. They're becoming category leaders. But also, we, we also have big brands. I mentioned KitchenAid and PepsiCo okay. and P&G that are also moving over to so us. So they use your, your guys' platform as opposed to building it out of them, themselves? Is that kind of the way you think about yeah, it? Yeah, some okay. of them built these homegrown, sto- homegrown stores and decided they don't want to run massive engineering teams. In other cases, they're migrating over from the large enterprise offerings. So if you look at a chart of your stock, since the end of 2018, it's just gone stratospheric, right? I mean, it's just absolutely rocketed. And I'm trying to understand how you maintain this sort of momentum at a time when there is a lot of competition and at a time when there still are a lot of questions uh, about the economy. Yeah, so a couple things. First of all, uh, I think when we first went public, which was 2015, Shopify was really uh, an e-commerce provider for merchants and entrepreneurs and small businesses in the English-speaking world. Since then, we've expanded well beyond e-commerce. We now power physical retail across. If you walk in any Albert store, you'll see Shopify powering the physical locations. And we do that across thousands of brick-and-mortar stores. We have a capital business. We've given up more than $800 million in cash advances. We have a payments business. We're launching a fulfillments business now. And we've also expanded beyond just our core geographies. Um, in fact, we've grown our um, the amount of merchants on our platform outside English-speaking countries from 24% last year to 29% this past quarter. And so we're seeing a larger TAM and we're doing more for our merchants, which is why I sort of refer to us as this retail operating system, not just an e-commerce provider anymore. So, you know, as an e-commerce provider or it expanded larger, you guys did not come out of Silicon Valley, did you? You guys are in Ottawa. We are, absolutely. Talk to us about like the startup community, the startup vibe in Canada. Is is Ottawa, Ottawa the place to do it or is it just entrepreneurs kind of all over? Yeah, actually, I think uh, startups and entrepreneurship and technology has become geographically agnostic. Yep. I actually think it's an advantage to be outside of Silicon Valley. I have a lot of peers that run companies like, like ours in the Valley and they tell me that the average tenure of employees there is super short, like 18 months. We see incredible talent coming out of Canada. We see incredible uh, loyalty. And I think there's something to be said about being the best place to work in any single geography. And I think Shopify is the best place to work in Canada and and one of them around the world. What about competition? I imagine that Amazon would love to get a piece of what you're doing. 
Yeah. So we don't compete with Amazon. Our million merchants do. And I think what Amazon is doing is they're trying to build an empire. And what we're doing is we're arming the rebels and the rebels are winning. So you see companies like Nike moving off Amazon because they want to have a direct relationship with their end consumers. Uh, Allbirds, for example, if you try to buy Allbirds on Amazon, you can only find fake Allbirds and, and, and Allbirds has been built on Shopify. So basically the idea here is rather than go to Amazon, you're trying to give them tools to be able to do it themselves and create a platform. Uh, how do you offer them the same kind of visibility that they may get in an Amazon. Yeah, so certainly if they're going to put their products on a marketplace like Amazon or eBay, they're going to uh, obviously, uh, they're going to rent their customers to those to those brands. We actually created a platform where uh, our merchants, our brands can actually find their own customers and own them, whether it's through social media or you can buy marketing directly from Shopify on things like Google or Facebook or Snapchat or Instagram. And so rather than simply giving them customers or renting them the way Amazon does and eventually they can take them back, we actually empower these merchants to create their own customer bases and they connect directly with them. Where are you guys investing in 2020? Uh, heavily in SFN, Shopify Fulfillment Network. We think that is, if you sort of look at what we've been doing over the last couple of years, we're, we're ticking off all the different challenges that a small business or a big business may have. We think fulfillment is one of those things. People don't want to use uh, third-party logistics companies because either the requirements, the minimums are way too high, or they put everything in the same box with their the marketplace's logo on it. What we're doing is uh, we're creating this network of third-party warehouses. We're aggregating them using technology and software. We bought a company in Boston called Six River Systems last year for about $450 million. They're going to provide incredible robotic technology to make all warehouses a lot more effective. And then we're going to democratize uh, shop the fulfillment network the way we've done with e-commerce. Just real quick here, I'm wondering, what's the most effective platform for advertising that you found? It really depends. I, I think for a lot of these DTC brands, the ones that are you know new, uh, direct-to-consumer mattress companies or companies like that, honestly, social media seems to be the, the best one. Now, that being said, others are, are in more of these traditional uh, industries. Their TV is actually working really well for them. Interesting. Harley, real quickly, Elon Musk is taking advantage of his surging shares price to sell some stock. Are you guys interested in selling stock? Uh, not at this moment. Okay. Harley Finkelstein, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Harley man. Finkelstein, Chief Operating Officer of Shopify based in Ottawa, joining us here in our interactive broker studio. Well, the global travel industry is really at the forefront of feeling the brunt of the coronavirus. You know, I'm thinking cruise ships, hotels, casinos, uh, really seeing business impacted significantly in the shares of those companies uh, reflecting it as well. Our next guest has a equally cautious view of those sectors. Tuna Amobi, he's a director and industry research analyst at CFRA Research. He joins us on the phone. Tuna, thanks so much for joining us again. I know you've gone, become more cautious, downgraded a bunch of stocks. Tell us how you see kind of some of these uh, casino companies, cruise lines, and the like. Good morning, uh, uh, Paul, my friend, and thanks for having me. Um, so over the past um, two weeks or so, we have actually taken a more dare assessment of the uh, potential impact of the coronavirus on, um, you know, the overall tourism. And, um, you know, the uh, cruise ships, um, the online travel companies, the casinos, the one constant theme has emerged is that, um, you know, while it's very difficult to quantify the overall impact, and of course, no one really knows the duration or how long it's going to last, uh, but we think that it's starting to take a toll right now. And uh, you just heard about, you know, the higher number of uh, death tolls, um, as well as more cases being diagnosed. So my sense is, um, you know, the market may still be uh, underestimating the 
uh, potential impact of this. If you remember, um, I think it seems to be some comfort level that if you compare to the, um, the SARS or the Ebola, and while those um, cases were ultimately you know, resolved, limiting its impact, what worries us here is, is really the speed and severity of, of, the, um, of the new cases that are being diagnosed and the death toll, which kind of leads us to believe that this is going to continue to be an overhang as, as the year goes on for, for quite some time. Tuna, it's so interesting to hear you speak because we speak with uh, economists and investors who say they're expecting some sort of V-shaped recovery in the economy of China and beyond. And I'm wondering, as you look at MGM basically withdrawing their entire outlook for the year, citing the disruption from the coronavirus, the fact that they get 27% of their business from Macau uh, and are losing an estimated more than a million dollars a day based on the current shutdown that we're seeing. How can we even be so sure that a place like MGM could compensate for this later on? You know, we can be. Uh, that's the short answer. We actually are taking a more uh, negative view of MDM downgrading to itself ahead of their earnings um, you know, report last night. I think that just confirmed to us um, that you know, no one really has a handle of this. So they talk about the expense burn rate, uh, about $1.5 million on a daily basis, even while the casinos have been shut down, uh, mostly for payroll. And that was also uh, a theme that we heard from Wynn Resorts in Las Vegas. So I think you're really starting to see, uh, you know, the casinos uh, starting to feel the brunt of this. And remember, um, you know, these are, you know, this is an industry that was already, already, I'm sorry, already massively impacted by the Hong Kong protests. Uh, so this uh, latest coronavirus issue just seems to be adding uh, salt to, to injury, and really no one has a handle uh, on, on when this is going to uh, dissipate. Now, one more thing I'd add is that even when the situation is resolved, typically, from a historical perspective, we usually see several months uh, be- before things can uh, get any semblance of, of normalization, which is really why uh, we think this 2020, um, at least the first half, certainly is going to uh, need uh, much more caution. Tuna, this is definitely specific to the casino industry, the travel industries. Is there, though, a broader brush that we could paint in terms of the potential longer-term impact, given your experience examining the corporate balance sheets of these companies as well as the likes of Amazon and Netflix? Well, you know, the one thing that I, I'd say is that China overall, um, you know, most of these companies, we talk about Amazon and Netflix, have a relatively limited direct exposure in China, partly due to the regulatory um, environment there. But I think the, um, what I see is some type of, uh, uh, you know, um, kind of a, a, a tangential fallout from this geopolitical situation. Uh, a lot of these companies, even when they are not directly operating in China, have some type of uh, strategic partnership. That's true, certainly, for online travel companies. And, of course, casinos have a huge stake in there. So every industry is different. China itself uh, has been a major, uh, you know, kind of um, driver of uh, global tourism, outbound travel. And I think what's important to remember is that while um, most of the issues right now appear to be limited to China, they could be, in fact, uh, a broader uh, geopolitical impact across even the U.S. and other, uh, you know, markets like Europe. Of course, that depends on how fast those uh, cases travel. But overall, while the overall impact on GDP growth is relatively muted at this point, I think you could actually... Uh, see that situation get out of control pretty fast. 
So Tuna, just on the cruise lines here, I know when you talk to a lot of people about, you know, why don't you go on a cruise? One of the concerns is just being, you know, stuck with so many people in a confined area. And it just seems like, you know, these outbreaks of diseases are perhaps more common there. Do you think there's longer term risk to kind of just the whole market, uh, you know, total market size for the cruising industry from this? I think what's interesting is before this coronavirus outbreak, um, you know, the cruise industry fundamentals were pretty healthy. We were expecting, a, you know, kind of a near record year uh, based on advanced indicators of booking and pricing, onboard spending. Um, you know, all of those indicators seem to be holding up well. Now, uh, it seems like all bets are off. When you kind of hear stories about, you know, the Diamond Priest has been quarantined and several other ships unable to find landing ports or destinations, my sense is that, there is a certain amount of weariness out there um, among potential cruise passengers in terms of booking uh, pending the resolution of this issue. So um, I think you're starting to see the guidance from cruise companies. Uh, you know, at risk is actually why we took a more negative stance on Royal Caribbean uh, as well as um, uh, Norwegian cruise, um, both of which we downgraded. We also have a sale on, on Carnival. So. Uh, this is something that's going to hover um, over the industry until uh, any more visibility in terms of the potential resolution. Tuna, just real quick here, 30 seconds. Do you buy this argument that Netflix is getting a huge boost from this because people are sitting home and doing Netflix and chill rather than going out, potentially getting coronavirus? Uh, Lisa, that's something we've heard um, before, but I, I'd say it's a little bit far-fetched uh, at this point. Um, it's really hard to kind of connect those dots. That being said, I mean, I can understand why, you know, maybe in isolated cases that could be true, but uh, hard to generalize here. Tuna Amobi, thank you so much. Tuna Amobi, Director and Industry Analyst at CFRA Research, joining us on the phone from New Jersey. I love that. I read a bunch of stories about how Netflix, you, you know, we talk about the negative impact of the coronavirus, but there are companies benefiting because people are staying home and they got to do something, so they might as well watch movies. On Monday, the Department of Justice announced charges against four members of China's People's Liberation Army uh, for the 2017 hack of Equifax. And this was something that exposed millions of Americans and their private data. It raises questions, uh, putting aside this particular uh, case, it raises questions about just how well we are able to detect the attacks that our data is uh, exposed to every single day. Joining us here in studio, Steve Wagner, Global Managing Director of Decision Analytics for Experian. Uh, Steve, so glad to have you. I want to start with that. Where are we when it comes to detection, uh, when it comes to these attacks? Sure. Well, the particular angle that we tend to come at this from uh, in my businesses is really uh, fraud and identity um, uh, within commercial transactions. So a lot of ways you could answer your question, we're focused on that particular angle. Um, uh, I think when we think about it, and we just uh, released a study that uh, we've done at 6,500 uh, 6, uh, consumers and uh, 650 businesses in 13 countries around the world. And we've been looking at this question of how uh, businesses should sort of shape their understanding. How do they react? What do they do? So the big issue is businesses faced with those kind of security threats instinctively sometimes will just clamp down, right? I, you know, the best thing for me to do is to not 
be involved digitally with anybody. Of course, that doesn't really allow you to do business very much. So the business person <laughs> has detail. to, yeah, the business person really has to think through what's the right way to do that. What's the right way to make commerce uh, work? So what our business people are generally thinking about is how do I create an extraordinary digital experience for my consumers? That's what they want to do, right? What we found in this particular study was that 95% of businesses believe that they're actually doing a good job of identifying who's coming to them um, electronically. 55% of consumers believe that the businesses actually understand who they are, uh, which is obviously a significant mismatch. So uh, do you think the businesses that think, 95% of the businesses think they're doing a good, good job identifying uh, who their customers are, is that, is that kind of false sense of security there? Do you think that that is a really valid number? Well, what, uh, well, I think the number's valid in the study, but what, right. they're, what you have to get to in order to understand that mismatch is the way businesses are looking at it today versus the way consumers are looking at it. So the way, bi- when, you, when you talk to a consumer, what do they care about first and foremost in their digital interactions? They care about security. So actually, when you talk to a, con- a consumer, you're a business, you're dealing with them online, Indicia of security make them feel better, make them happier to interact with you. A business, on the other hand, when you rank their priorities, number one in their priority list is uh, 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 creating an experience that is targeted to that individual, right? So in other words, they'll look at it, they'll say, yeah, I understand, I know who Paul is, I've seen him before, Um, that's all I need to know. Now the real question is whether or not the things I say to Paul and what I do with Paul is really on target or not. And the consumer's just saying, hey, look, actually, when you asked me for passwords and you asked me, you know, put me into a credentialed environment, that's when I'm willing to share. So, you know, yeah. but this goes really to the heart of do you know who you're dealing with? Do you know what uh, the incoming uh, attention you're getting really is about? I mean, according to the same study, you, you talked about how fraud continues to increase uh, with 57 percent of businesses citing an increase in the past 12 months. And I just wonder how much this is an increase in the ability to detect some of these and how much is an increase in attacks or is it both? Yeah, so I, I think there's an opportunity in the market right now because I think what we've identified, this mismatch between how consumers feel and where businesses are, businesses also believe that if they really understand who the consumer is, fraud will go down. So it's sort of, it's clear in the study that businesses aren't quite getting it right yet. So what businesses need to do is, um, is take more advantage of the data and the analytics that are available within these online digital environments. So right now, I don't think they do that enough. They tend to say, all right, I've gotten passwords for this individual. I know their name. I know a few. I know them. But actually, there's a, quite a bit more um, available. And in particular, there's, there are quite a few individual threat modality fraud tools that you can use. And the question is, are these being knitted together into a comprehensive way? Or are businesses just employing, oh, I use, I use device ID. Oh, I use uh, biometric behavioral biometrics. I use this. When in fact, what you really need to win today is you need a comprehensive capability that incorporates sort of all of the different tools that are available, layers that with um, analytics so that you can really construct strong defenses. Steve Wagner, thanks so much for joining us. Really fascinating the discussion as more and more of our time is spent online. Uh, you have to balance the, does the 
business know me and are they protecting my data and all those it's types such of an interesting concept that you know there's one thing about having artificial intelligence detecting all of the incoming threats it's another thing just to know who you're dealing with at yeah. any given time and how do you do that well and that sort of dual approach to trying to stave yep. off some of the attacks that are seem that seem to be increasing for every business that does uh, that does that operates in the yep. online world which is yep. everyone everyone Steve Wagner global managing director experience decision analytics uh, based in Orange County, California, but joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Tesla really in the front uh, and focus today with shares up 1.6%. This is amazing because ahead of the uh, open, we saw shares down as much as 7.2%. And this comes after a filing showing that they planned a $2 billion offering of common stock, taking advantage of the rally in the share price that we've seen uh, that's been absolutely astronomical. I'm trying to understand a, why people don't seem to care that they're going to be diluted very, very marginally, but typically this is something that, that matters. Uh, and B, why then Tesla didn't raise more? Kevin Tynan joining us here in our interactive broker studios. Uh, Kevin Tynan, Senior Autos Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Kevin, let's just first talk about the response. Why are shares up today? Um, well, because I, I think the idea of adding... Uh, capital of the balance sheet wasn't an overhang, right? I think that the investors believe that they are, he said this in the middle of 2018, they're going to be profitable from here forward. They're going to fund themselves from here forward. So I think that that removed the bear case or that bear argument at that time. Uh, so needing a little bit of capital here, it's, it's, it's not that big a deal to sort of reverse, especially when you think of the circumstances, right? It was, it's a no brainer considering the way the stock is run and, and the amount of, it's, it's absolutely the right thing to do. And to your point, I would say, why not do even more than that? Um, but, but a lot of the way this is managed, this company is managed, is about that perception, right? Just the idea of burning short sellers, right, is just something you don't really see from most CEOs, right? You run the business the right way, uh, profitably growth, and that takes care of itself. To actively sort of target that group is just, it's just unorthodox, and I think that's a big part of it is that perception, that raising capital shows a sign of weakness that we can't fund ourselves when in fact it's just part of the process and when it makes sense to do so you do it. So the company also announced that they're going to spend about three and a half billion dollars in CapEx this year. Give us this, is that enough for some of the plans they've announced? It It, it is because of um, he loves leverage and really in this environment who doesn't. Right. Um, so a lot of that fixed investment will come from from borrowing, like so, even the Shanghai factory was money taken down from the from the Chinese government, and same thing probably with Berlin. So, so that capex number that they put out there probably does not include anything they would borrow to um, to build those factories or to expand out and 
get to some level of scale in China, whether that's distribution infrastructure, sales infrastructure, all that stuff will come out of that CapEx number, but the buildings themselves will come from the borrowing. Elon Musk has said that they were not going to be raising more capital this year, so this is an about face for him. Uh, Also, Tesla has been cutting back its expenditures over the past few years in response to criticism about burning through cash, and they reported an actual net profit, uh, which is one of the reasons why shares rallied so much. Given that, and given that they seem to be doubling down on the spending and not necessarily the cash generation, why are investors so sanguine about this move? Well, I think also too, keep in mind the projects that he's that he's teased, right? So there's Roadster 2.0, there's semi truck, there's there's cyber truck, there's Model Y coming, there's all these grand plans, there's robo taxi fleet, a million units in 2020. So so investors, the reaction will be like he's funding the growth. Right. There's enough things to do. There's factories to build. There's products to put out there that this is what you have to do. You need capital to do it. And that's what he's doing real quick. What's the demand for electric vehicles? Do we have a sense? Boy, you know, it was it's in the one percent range in 2019. So what do the bulls think it will be? Well, if if you ask the the Uber bulls, it's going to be that everybody who owns a car will have to have an electric vehicle. Plus, it's not only a vehicle, right? It's your smartphone. It's it's everything. So Tesla, as a technology company, can be all things. Everybody who needs a car and a phone needs is their addressable <laughs> market. Kevin Tynan, Senior Autos Analyst, Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Tesla stock up just you know about one and one and a half percent here, but that uh, back on the news of a two, maybe $2.3 billion stock offering uh, and the associated d- dilution and supply into the marketplace, just extraordinary that the stock's trading up. But you know, as Kevin was mentioning, there is a lot of capital demand uh, for this company. And there's a cult of belief behind Elon Musk. And I think there are other company, companies that if they suddenly decided to invest money in some questionable project, people wouldn't rally behind them. Elon Musk is a different case. It's a different case. It is a cult stock for many. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg P&L podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz 1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.